Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, hurdles, and triumphs in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Welcome to the next episode of Care Captains. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Tobias Bittner as our guest, an outstanding individual who has transitioned from aspiring astronaut to making radical contributions in Alzheimer's research. We will explore his journey, the challenges of biomarker and drug development, and his relentless motivation. Tobias also shares insights into blood-based biomarkers, his impact on patient well-being, the challenges he faced in test development, and the power of collaboration. Join us as we uncover the inspiring story of Tobias and gain valuable advice for aspiring scientists in the healthcare industry. Tobias, welcome to Care Captains. It's a pleasure to have you here in the show. How are you today, Tobias? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Norbert, and thanks for thinking of me um, with your project here. You know, when I was thinking about you, you always come to my mind two words, one astronaut and the second one Alzheimer. So maybe let's start with the first one. I think you almost became an astronaut. So can you tell me more about the story that what was this journey before joining the healthcare industry? was the ambition to become an astronaut. And this is deeply rooted in my years when I was six or seven or eight years old. Um, this was what I always wanted to be. And I maybe pursued it a little further than most people who have that childhood dream. I also went to the International Space University in Strasbourg, which is a one-year master's course where they teach you everything about space, so space business, how to design satellites, calculate trajectories, uh, also space law. Um, and it was a very cool time that I that I spent there after studying biology in Munich. And then in 2008, the European Space Agency uh, was looking for new astronauts, and I was very eager to apply. Did so, and then came into I think the the second or third round. Uh, I was amongst the last 192, and then they did a psychological exam, um, and that was the stage when I then didn't uh, progress further. And which, you know, was quite a painful, but very interesting experience. And then, um, interestingly, also uh, two years ago, I think in 2021, the European Space Agency looked again for another group of new astronauts. I applied again, came to the same stage, failed at the same stage again. So which now gives me closure because apparently um, I have come to the conclusion, same as ESA, that I'm apparently not astronaut material. So that's the, the whole story behind that. You have uh, another big ambition, which is, I think, as almost as big as going to the moon, transforming Alzheimer's. So how did you choose this um, calling, so to say? How did you get to the industry? Well, I always wanted to work in the healthcare system or doing something good for people. And I think the transformative experience that I had or still remember is when my aunt died of, of breast cancer when I was about 13 or 14, she also had two little kids and the pain that this inflicted on the whole family, I think was, was a very powerful experience to me. So I wanted to do something about healthcare. And the other thing is also my dad, um, you know, sometimes dad have these very uh, deep and uh, insightful conversations with their sons or, or children. And I had this about 16 or 17 and where I actually didn't know how exactly to enter professional life or also what to study at university. And then he gave me one really, I think, good piece of advice. And that was, you know, there, there's so many major problems in the world, Tobias, 
just pick one and you know give you everything and try to help fixing it and and that was really the other component you know i, I wanted to do something about healthcare and then pick one problem and focus I went to university. I was looking for PhD positions in the field of biology. And the one that fascinated me a lot was a new technology, which is called uh, in vivo microscopy, where you can image with a laser into the brain tissue of living animals, in this case, mice. So you, you implant a window into the skull of the mice, and then you can basically watch neurons and the synapses in, in this, in this brain tissue, as well as in, in the Alzheimer case, the amyloid plaques, and and you can all visualize this and follow the living mouse over a course of two years while the mouse gets an artificial form of Alzheimer's disease. And I was so fascinated by this technology that you could look into the brain of a mouse and understand how neurons work and also how pathologies make neurons and synapses disappear that I wanted to do this PhD. And the initial project was actually not about Alzheimer's disease, but it was about prion disease because I did this at the um, Research Center for Prion Diseases in Munich, which was mad cow disease. The German government invested a lot of money into, into research along those lines in case there were more cases to come along, which then thankfully did not happen. And then the center tried to move to some new research territory. And the next best thing was Alzheimer's disease with the big unmet need. So this is really how I got into Alzheimer's disease. And then I did five years of PhD, which I absolutely loved. It was hardcore science with a really cool group of people cutting-edge technology, also published well. And then I, I wanted to leave academia because I already had a little daughter and I always wanted to have a little bit more job security uh, compared to an academic career where, you know, if you're lucky, you become a professor, but not that many people will become professors at the end of the day. So I was looking for uh, positions in the healthcare industry and applied for several open positions uh, some of them in the diagnostic arena, but also some in pharma. And the one that I got after about a year, because there's so many PhD students coming out of university, and the position that I was offered uh, from Roche was uh, Roche Diagnostics to develop um, immunoassays to detect amyloid pathology in, in the brain of, of Alzheimer patients. So this was, I could extend my experiences from PhD days and move them into the diagnostic industry, which I was super grateful for. And if I'm not mistaken, you used to work on uh, several biomarkers in the Alzheimer field. What, what, what makes it difficult to develop these biomarkers? Alzheimer's is comprised of two main hallmark pathologies in the brain. And this definition comes really from Alice Alzheimer from you know, more than 100 and uh, nearly 20 years ago. And, and it is aggregates of amyloid, which is, uh, is clumped together in the brain. And then you have within neurons you have tau pathology, which is another protein that also aggregates. And, and both of these proteins are very prone to aggregate in Alzheimer's disease. And aggregation means that these proteins, they like to stick to each other and they also stick to other surfaces. And, and so it's, it's very difficult to handle these types of proteins also in the laboratory. So for example, if you have a test tube and you have body fluid in it, it can be blood or um, cerebrospinal fluid, which is the liquid that surrounds your brain. And if you just put your, your pipette in it to extract some of the volume, these proteins, especially A beta 42, it's, it sticks heavily to the, your pipette tip and to the, to the inside of this tube. And, and so it's really difficult to handle the types of proteins in the lab. So this was, I think, the, the main challenge that we were facing and are still facing today. 
Are there any new biomarkers besides um, A-beta, P-tau and T-tau, which are in development, which are also showing good promise and maybe leading to the most important question, how does that help developing medications and treating Alzheimer's disease? We are fortunate that over the last 20 years, there have been really big advances in the in the field of biomarkers in, in neurological or specifically neurodegenerative diseases. For Alzheimer's specifically, most still revolves around the amyloid and the tau biomarkers. There are some other proteins, neurogranin, which is a, which is a part of the synapses. So when they degenerate in neurodegenerative diseases. Neurogranin is released also in some of the body fluids and can be measured as an indicator of, of synaptic loss. Um, another quite um, prominent one is uh, neurofilament light or NFL, which is a marker, is a, it's a marker, which is a protein that is within neurons. So when a, when a neuron or a nerve cell dies, these proteins get released into the cerebrospinal fluid or also in the blood. And you can measure them as indicators of neurodegeneration. They're not that specific to a certain disease because whenever a nerve cell dies, doesn't matter if it's due to Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or Huntington's or even traumatic brain injury, um, this marker goes up. But it still has a lot of utility and could one day be a really good indicator of some structural neurodegenerative brain damage. So how do the, all of these biomarkers help really in, in, in drug development or maybe more in general in Alzheimer's disease? There are multiple purposes of these biomarkers. So I think the first one and maybe also the easiest one is for diagnostic purposes. So if you today have a family member that complains about their mental health or maybe more specifically that they experience cognitive decline or, or some type of loss of cognitive function, it is first unclear whether that what this where this comes from so it, it could have multiple reasons so it could be as easy as maybe with vitamin d deficiency or depression or you know bad sleep but it could also really have um, underlying pathology that is that is linked to um, neurodegenerative diseases and this is where the biomarkers come in so people would approach their general practitioner or, and then would get asked a couple of questions, how they feel about their, their brain health. And then if there's a suspected a cognitive impairment, then the doctor could order uh, biomarker tests, like the test that we have developed at Roche for, for cerebrospinal fluid, um, where the result would indicate that the cognitive impairment that the patient experiences is quite likely due to underlying Alzheimer's disease pathology. And then the physician could you know send the patient to the specialist for for more clarifications around this and eventually these tests or these biomarkers would help in uh, an alzheimer diagnosis for that for that particular patient and then with subsequent treatments if they are available and this brings us to the next step so how do biomarkers help maybe in drug development so also here Whenever a pharmaceutical company like Roche, for example, develops new therapeutics, um, we need to test them first in clinical trial participants to test whether they're safe and whether they're efficacious. And in order to enroll these patients, there are certain inclusion-exclusion criteria. And one mandatory one these days is really that we make sure that the patients we include in these trials do really have uh, Alzheimer's pathology and that can be tested, for example, with these um, cerebrospinal fluid uh, biomarkers that we're, we have now developed. And only if they are positive, they are allowed to be in our trials. And then at the same time, 
we can also test how these biomarkers are modulated by the presence of the new therapeutic substance. So in, in the case of amyloid, um, we expect these amyloid species to be, to be changed after we give a drug against these amyloid species as the, as the main drug target. Very interesting. Recently, there has been many um, programs um, aiming to develop uh, novel uh, disease-modifying treatments in Alzheimer's. Many of them failed. Um, I think recently one has been approved in the U.S. Why do you think it's so challenging to come up with a novel treatment or with the first treatment in Alzheimer's? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a multitude of factors. I think first and foremost, the brain is still the part of the body that is least understood, I would argue. It's just also very difficult to study it because there aren't that many good model organisms that you could um, transfer learnings directly to humans. Uh, so the mouse brain, for example, is different from the human brain. The other thing is that it's not very accessible, the brain itself. So in oncology, if you have a tumor, extract it, make a biopsy out of it, and then really profile it to the, to the deepest level to see what type of genetic profile it has. With the brain, it's really difficult. So it's not a common thing to do brain biopsies these days um, for, for very good reason. So it's, so you need sometimes very complicated and expensive imaging technologies to look into the brain and or you need to sample body fluids like blood or cerebrospinal fluid which is closer um, in close contact with the brain and to and to try to understand or get insights into what happens in the brain through these more indirect measures and i think these two things make it really really hard to study brain diseases in general now another thing is also if you want to treat brain diseases, the brain has a very fascinating mechanism to shield itself from toxins and um, substances that should not get in contact with the brain, it's, which is called the blood-brain barrier. And so if we try to bring substances like a, like a large therapeutic antibody into the brain uh, of Alzheimer's disease patients, for example, we inject these substances into the bloodstream usually or under the skin, so sub in um, intravenous or subcutaneous injections, but then only a fraction of these molecules actually reach the brain itself because the blood-brain barrier um, makes sure that most of these antibodies don't reach the brain because they could be harmful to the brain. So it's part of the protective mechanism of the brain. And so it's also quite challenging to apply the medicines or new therapeutics to the origin of the disease, which in this case is the brain. Uh, so this is another big challenge. And then I think um, maybe the third big challenge is that Alzheimer's disease progresses incredibly slowly. It's quite consistent, but it progresses very, very slowly, sometimes over decades, from the buildup of these first amyloid plugs in the brain to the onset of symptoms to you know full cognitive and functional impairment and eventually also the death of the patient. And, and this makes it quite difficult, uh, or at least it makes it very time consuming um, to study it and also to run clinical trials in, in patients that have uh, Alzheimer's disease or are developing Alzheimer's disease. Because in order to see a therapeutic effect, these patients need to decline to some degree so that you can actually show a beneficial uh, effect of the treatment. And usually Alzheimer's disease studies are at least 18 months long, sometimes even longer, uh, up to two years or even longer than two years, depending which um, 
disease stage these patients are in, which means that you have to a, a standard Alzheimer's disease study today in a, in a phase two or phase three setting with recruitment um, study duration up until readout usually takes, I think, an average of four to five years. And, and so the field is learning in these increments of four to five years, you know, from, from study to study to study. And that makes the, makes it really, really time consuming to study this disease. And the progress in this, in the scientific field is really slowed down by, by the need for these very long studies. You are a very dynamic person and when the progress is so slow, when you need to wait for the results several years and it's so complex to work with the brain, what keeps you awake? What keeps you moving that you are still working in Alzheimer's disease, Tobias? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's 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 not for people that um, want to see results quickly and and iterate on them in a, in a fast pace. And I'm very impatient, have always been, so this is a this is a daily challenge for me. I have to admit. However, there's also an advantage that comes with it, which means we have a lot of time when while these studies are running um, to sharpen our tools. What I mean by that is that we can find new biomarkers, develop new biomarkers, learn more about them, and and that is something that is um, usually faster paced than the than the clinical trial readouts and outcomes. And that is also very interesting science and will eventually also hopefully help um, not only our clinical studies, but also eventually patients. Speaking of um, sharpening the toolbox, learning about uh, new solutions, digital biomarkers popped up in the last couple of years, which uh, use uh, behavioral data. You know, they use various wearables, portable devices, and try to give you some kind of like diagnosis of Alzheimer's. What, what's your take um, on these uh, novel uh, biomarkers, Tobias? Yeah, this is a great question and, uh, you know, very top of mind at the moment in the field. I have to admit that I'm not a, a hardcore expert um, in the field of digital biomarkers, but I, I mean, I'm obviously aware of what's happening in the field. Um, I think they come with a lot of promise, um, meaning that these are all indirect, but um, interesting ways of how you can uh, generate a lot of data uh, to profile these patients. And um what is what is quite interesting about digital biomarkers by themselves is that they are minimally invasive you don't need to implant anything or you know put a needle into the body or extract something but they basically are, are very elegantly capturing data in daily life it's also probably pretty cost effective because they're scalable it could be in your cell phone and which you, you carry around with you or play the games on the on the cell phone so i think they're cost effective minimally invasive which are two really good features. I think the big question mark at the moment is whether they are also precise enough in whatever they measure can actually detect certain features of the pathology in a specific way. Could a digital biomarker distinguish Alzheimer's disease from, let's say, Parkinson's? This would be one key question. And while there have been promising steps into, into the right direction, I still think that the field is looking for really, really good examples where um, the utility of these digital biomarkers has been shown beyond reasonable doubt, specifically in Alzheimer's disease, but also in other diseases. In the, in the near future, we will see the first couple of digital biomarkers that are also approved for a numerous amount of um, 
neurodegenerative and neurological diseases. Staying on these uh, novel solutions, uh, technological advancements, you mentioned that the blood-brain barrier is really difficult to overcome. And right now, as I understand, a needle needs to be put into the uh, backbone and then a cerebral spinal fluid is taken out. And this is what is the sample to be analyzed for the biomarkers. What do you think? When are we going to have blood-based biomarkers? How far they are from the market, which are probably less invasive and then potentially can provide the same results as this very invasive CSF type of test? Yeah, this is also a very good question. And you know, with the first disease-modifying therapies for Alzheimer's disease um, to now be launched very soon in the US and in the EU, there's a big need for an accurate and timely diagnosis. And one of the big issues in the if you so if you look at the patient journey, this is usually what diagnostic and pharma companies look at. So so how does the patient move through the different parts of the system before the patient gets uh, diagnosed? and then also treat it. Um, and then even after treatment, there are um, ways to monitor the treatment effect of the patient. Um, so this is all called the patient journey. And along those lines, there are multiple shortcomings at the moment in uh, Alzheimer's disease specifically. So even with now hopefully disease-modifying therapy being approved, the patient pathway up until the diagnosis and then subsequent treatment is pretty convoluted in many, many regions in the world. And what I mean by convoluted is that there are a couple of bottlenecks and it's also not standardized. It's, it depends largely on luck um, on the side of the patient to find a physician that has time into diagnosing that patient, meaning um, to do extensive tests with that patient and, and to really chaperone the patient through this um, through this patient funnel up to the diagnosis. And, and a part of that problem is also that an Alzheimer diagnosis today is largely only done by a specialist. So you need to be in a memory center or at a neurologist who can perform these cognitive tests and then also prescribe um, the cerebrospinal fluid test or, or a PET test, which would be the equivalent uh, to detect the, this amyloid pathology in the brain. And there aren't enough specialists today in the world, and we've published a paper a, a few years ago that clearly shows that now that there might be disease-modifying therapies on the market soon, um, a lot of people want to be diagnosed. They, they, have, they have cognitive impairment, they're worried about their brain health, they will approach the healthcare system, and they expect to be diagnosed. But the number of specialists that can make a diagnosis is limited. You can't you know, you can't grow neurologists that quickly. It takes, you know, 20, 25, 30 years to, to have a neurologist, you know, at the full level of capacity. And, and so we somehow need to come up with ways of how to reduce the bottleneck of insufficient specialists. And one way of doing that is to provide a blood test for the detection of uh, amyloid or Alzheimer pathology and to give that blood test not only in the hands of the specialist, but to give it in the hands of the general practitioner or um, primary care physician so that they could already do some of the things that currently only the specialist does and, and therefore front load these activities um, to, to a much larger group of people, which are the GP's tools to really make that happen. Blood-based biomarkers are extremely promising um, to help uh, democratize um, an Alzheimer's diagnosis. The, the current challenges are blood biomarkers for Alzheimer's were called science fiction, but five to six years ago, 
the first data came out that showed that you can measure these amyloid proteins as well as the tau proteins that we today measure in cerebrospinal fluid, that you can detect them as well in, um, in the blood and that they also have value as a biomarker, which means they can indicate whether you have Alzheimer or amyloid pathology in your brain or not. And they can do that not yet to a level that is equivalently high or good uh, compared to the cerebrospinal fluid biomarkers, um, but we're getting there. It's very promising, a lot of uh, research funding, not only from us, but, but in general in the field um, is going into this. And I'm actually quite convinced that within the next five years, we will have um, approved, fully regulatory approved blood tests for Alzheimer's disease on the market. I understand working in the brain is not easy. Understanding the entire organ is definitely far away. It was a really nice roundup talking about the various biomarkers, digital biomarkers, different tests, and maybe coming back a little bit to your work, your, your daily job. You started at the laboratory, you worked on several biomarkers, and right now you are working in the drug development uh, program also from the biomarkers side. What, what do you think, what's your biggest impact to patients? How do you contribute to the patient's well-being? With all humility was um, to have contributed to the cerebrospinal fluid test Roche um, has developed uh, over the last 13 years, which is now launched in most countries in the world. And and that, I think, uh, eventually became the development lead of that test. And I like to think that I have contributed to that in a way that it really helps patients, which is, you know, a really great feeling and uh, makes you also quite humble, I have to say. Now, the next big step would obviously be to work on a um, therapeutic, um, because there, I think the the impact on patients um, is equivalently big or even bigger. And and in that in that particular role that I am in right now, I'm trying to look for ways how to better diagnose patients, how to better profile them, to get them into our clinical trials, but then also to help better understand the treatment effects of the new therapeutics that we're testing in these patients. And to basically build up the level of evidence, good chances of, of regulatory approval for these, for these uh, novel therapeutics. Um, but also to learn more about how the brain and these therapeutics work so that we can generate or you know develop even better um, therapeutics of the next generation. Definitely, this it is really a great achievement. And I understand that um, uh, the test has been launched in uh, several markets. I'm just wondering that it was really a long journey getting to a commercially available test. And as a development lead and working in the laboratory, what were these pivotal moments in this development work? What you remember still vividly? Oh, it was really difficult to overcome. Yeah, I think there, there were multiple ones. Um, one I already touched upon, it's this um, the stickiness of this A-beta peptide itself. I mean, in the lab, we called it the protein from hell. Um, and, you know, just learning how to handle it in the best way possible to still provide you with um, robust and replicable uh, result. Uh, that was the first challenge, I think. Um, and then with most of these um, immunoassays, the, the, their performance largely depends on the quality of the diagnostic antibodies that you have in your, in your diagnostic test. And developing high-quality antibodies was the next challenge uh, for this assay. And it took us, for some of these proteins, it took us years um, and several rounds of antibody development in, in mice, but also in rabbits, um, 
in order to find suitable uh, antibodies that allow um, the specific um, Alexis assays at Roche uh, to do their job within only 18 minutes. And then we had another challenge as well, which is um, so for a diagnostic test to be eventually approved, if there is no such test already on the market by one of your competitors, um, you need to run a um, clinical trial or you have to see how the test really performs in samples from real patients. And getting access to these types of samples and, um, and studies um, was a quite challenging process that, that I was also spearheading within, within Roche in the development. And there were basically um, two large cohorts that have already been collected in the world with cerebrospinal fluid, but also with amyloid PET as the gold standard to test against. And one of these cohorts um, from Sweden, we got quite easily, but the other cohort was a little harder to get. There was an application process and, you know, I filled out a lot of documents and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the first round of assessment said, no, you you can't have these samples. And then I realized that, you know, maybe there's a little more to it. So I investigated uh, and we finally also got access to it, but it was not a straightforward route that I had imagined in the beginning, uh, but it was quite uh, complicated and uh, to some degree, I think also uh, political. So, but at the end of the day, we prevailed. We, we got both cohorts, which were necessary um, to secure the, the approval. Um, not only in the U.S., but also in the in the rest of the world. And then, um, you know, when we were close to approval, we had um, another big epiphany. We we found out that coming back again to the stickiness of this protein. So if you take the sample from the patient in different ways, so for example, uh, from patient one, you take the sample and you put it immediately on your on your analyzer, and for patient two, you take the sample and you let it sit. On, on the table for a day before you centrifuge and then you freeze it and then you put it on the analyzer. The results are very different uh, just through this, what we call pre-analytical sample handling procedure. So um, we had to invest another two to three years into figuring out what a unified pre-analytical sample handling procedure is that is easy to follow by physicians, easy to follow by the labs, and that will eventually result in robust and reproducible results across different laboratories, across different countries, across different physicians. I like the fact that you started with your core territory, the quality of antibodies, that you use the phrase protein from the hell. I think that's uh, really illustrative. And then we extended to getting access to samples and then the sample handling procedure was also a challenge to solve. How about the human factor? I'm, I'm pretty sure you were not working alone on this program. You needed to have smart um, um, scientists work with you, a broader team, maybe from the regulatory department as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly this is a this is a this is an effort with uh, which I think I mean, hundreds of people have have worked on this in you know more or less uh, with more or less bandwidth of their time uh, over the last thirteen years. Um, so this is a this is a huge team effort. Um, yeah, I mean, one challenge obviously is if you work in a in a big company um, that your project is just one project amongst many, and a lot of your colleagues uh, whose time and uh, bandwidth you need in order to get your project done um, also work on other projects. And so the question is, how do you get what you need in the fastest way possible? And one of them is who shouts loudest? 
gets usually what what they want faster. So this is like one big learning. Um, so I I really constantly um, try to be on their radar um, in a polite but um, persistent way, um, asking them to you know help with their expertise and their and their input and deliverables. So this is the first thing. I think you you really have to be have to be on top of it all the time to incentivize people to help you. And and here, um, I mean, I have to say this was never really hard, but it's um, especially if you work on a project that has such a clear patient benefit. And when you also, I mean, I always felt the urgency because um, I, you know, have seen when I was younger how. Um, insufficient treatment and care um, in the case of my aunt who you know passed away due to breast cancer uh, how this can really impact patients lives and the lives of families so you know i i have i feel and i really live by this um, um need of urgency or sense of urgency um to do this in the in the fastest way possible and and i've i've tried to also convince people and co-workers um, through that same narrative. So, you know, we have to do this. This is important for patients. So what can I do to help you accelerate whatever you have to do for the project? If you argue along those lines, um, I've, I've rarely found anyone um, who is not willing to give their, um, their, their best and in the fastest way possible to help you move this forward. You work in many different functions. Um, how, how do you see scientists' um, brains ticking versus maybe commercial people's brain ticking? Um, can they synchronize easily? Do they see the world differently? Um, yes and no. I, I think that um, what unites us here at Roche is really um, our willingness to help patients. And, um, you know, our motto is doing now what patients need next. And I really think that the vast majority of the people working at Roche really thoroughly believe in that mission and that calling. Um, and that is irrespective of whether they're scientists or in marketing or in sales. This, I think this is, this is what really unites us. So, but underneath that, obviously, um, different people in different functions with different backgrounds have different metrics of success. So how their performance is rated uh, by other people, but also how um, how they basically like to think and argue about the value of certain things. And and obviously, I mean, there are many, many trade-offs that need to be made in a, in a product development like that. And this is, I think, where these different functions potentially collide. Um, and there might be at the end of the day also not necessarily a right or wrong. It's, it's always going to be a compromise um, somewhere in the middle. The thing that I found quite uh, helpful and uh, which also, by the way, made me um, do a crash course in, in uh, business administration at the University of Hagen in Germany, because me as a scientist, I felt I didn't have the right vocabulary and background to be able to articulate my scientific needs or ideas for the project in terms that a business person can easily understand and also appreciate by using their metrics of success. What's your success metrics in these days? Whatever I do, I want to make sure that it's impactful for patients. You have to be aware, this is, this is a little bit of a danger in a large company as well, I have to say. Um, there are many, many stakeholders that... Um, want something from you. There are many interesting projects within the company that you could 
um, that you find interesting as a scientist and you might like to be involved. But at the end of the day, we all only have 24 hours per day. We have a private life. And, and so you have to make trade-offs. And I think a good metric of success is, is absolutely key because otherwise you will dilute your efforts. And in my opinion, will, will achieve much less, uh, compared to if you, if you focus, uh, and prioritize based on your metric of success. What tips you would give to the new scientists aspiring for um, new positions in the industry or they just would like to work on their next research project? Yeah, this is a tough one. And I have to say that um, I have these conversations quite often um, these days, um, which probably means that I have come to an age where <laughs> I'm not the youngest anymore myself. Um, but so so that I, I have been extremely fortunate, I have to say, because I... Um, I was very lucky to get my first job in the industry. This was pure luck um, because this job was never advertised. I applied for another job that was only about 50% fitting to my profile. Um, and that job I didn't get, but another job that was never advertised, I got, um, which I would have never seen if I hadn't applied for the first job. So this is, it's, yeah. So this is, you have to put yourself out there. Maybe it's one thing. And then it's about luck. Um, and the other thing that is also quite important and can be somehow influenced by yourself is um, how you choose your your boss. And um, and I have been extremely fortunate with the, the three line managers that I had in my career at Roche, that they were all not only great line managers, mentors, and also friends. Your first boss really determines um, your trajectory. If your first boss doesn't let you grow, might even be afraid of you growing or outgrowing uh, him or herself, um, that's a real, that's a recipe for uh, a very um, bad career trajectory, in my opinion. So my first boss at Roche, um, he <laughs> threw me into the cold water, as we say in German. So there was absolutely, I mean, he, he had my back, he supported me, but he, he, you know, let me basically drive the whole project, eventually have visibility to upper management. So one example, after about um, two years into the job, I was still a postdoc. Um, I was uh, I was allowed to present to the CEO of Roche, um, you know, which was quite a nerve wracking experience, I have to say, especially preparing for that. But neither my boss, nor my boss boss, nor my boss 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 um, took that away from me. They actually wanted me to be the person who's in the trenches, who does the project, and to present to the CEO. Challenge you, still support you, throw you into the cold water, uh, but then really make sure that you grow and have the visibility. So I think this is this is the one um, thing that I can um, I can give as advice to people. You know, put yourself out there. Also apply to positions that might not fit a hundred percent because you never know what comes out of it at the end and who you're going to meet. But then also, if you have the chance, um, select your boss in a way, let you grow and, and is not afraid of you growing. I think that's the, that's the main uh, advice that I could give. Thank you, Tobias. Very insightful. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. I hope you didn't mind volunteering for the second podcast of Care Captains. Thank you again. I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Novet. This was a pleasure. I hope you have enjoyed another episode of Care Captains. See you next week.